morning. That was a great response. You guys are up at them and ready to go, and I'm glad because we got to talk quick and listen fast, all right? So we're going to try to uh, eventually finish Genesis chapter 3, but we don't want to go too fast. There is a lot of truth we want to try to glean from this text, and if we get it wrong here, we won't interpret the Bible accurately, so we want to try to navigate through this uh, in a clear manner. So Genesis chapter 3, if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you to join me in Genesis 3. We're going to begin in verse 1 and read to the end of the chapter, trying to keep it in context. And then uh, uh, as uh, honesty and advertising, I'm probably going to get to around verse 13 uh, today, and then we'll wrap up verses 14 to the end of the chapter, 14 through 24 next week uh, as we walk through. You'll see the notes are already listed there, so we won't hit probably the last two points, um, which is on the back side of your, your notes. So typically we try to get them all on one side. I want you to know there are notes on the back, so if you get to the end of the page and you're like, where is he at? Flip the page over, that will help you. And so with that being said, if you have a copy of the notes, they should be in your weekly bulletin. You can pull those out, and uh, it'll aid us in our time together this morning. So uh, we're in Genesis chapter 3. We're looking at creation and the curse of sin. And so when you, uh, where we left off, uh, as far as uh, two weeks ago, we were looking at uh, uh, creation of woman and then the institution of marriage. And uh, once again, that's a recap of uh, day six. And so what we know from Genesis one thirty one of the end of day six is God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. And then day seven, God rests. And then we, if you just stop there and you begin to look at the world, you begin to go, oh, I wouldn't define the world as very good. And you would be honest and you would be accurate because uh, all things are not very good. There is disease and there is decay and there is destruction and there is death uh, and there is disobedience. And so there's a lot of other D words I could throw in as well, but there's a lot that is not good. And so how did we get there? How did we arrive there? And uh, Genesis chapter 3 is not a myth or a legend or a fable. Uh, It's an accurate account of what actually happened uh, in the garden that would then lead us to be able to see and interpret our world biblically, interpret our world accurately. And so with that being said, let's read Genesis 3, 1 through 24. I'll do a, a very quick and hopefully brief recap uh, from last week to give us a little idea where we were, and then um, we'll pick up with our outline from this morning. So Genesis 3, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was, uh, was to be desired to make one wise. She took up its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And, Adam, he, and to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. 
and pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat, up, eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden. He placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that he turned every way to guard the, tree, the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to learn more of your character and more of your nature. And in learning, Father, that we would glory in that. We would glory in you. We would glorify you. And we would praise you for helping us make sense of this world, helping us to understand our place in it, helping us to understand Christ fulfillment of your word that's even seen here in Genesis chapter 3. And Lord, that we would then, in our glory and in our praise, be witnesses. We would take this great and glorious news, this gospel, to others. Share the wisdom that, Lord, we know that many in this world call foolishness or a stumbling block. And so, Father, we then acknowledge that even as we take this message, it will be those whom you've called those whom you will justify, those whom you will glorify, that will be the ones who will receive it. And so I pray that we would not grow discouraged or disheartened in sharing a message that will be widely dismissed, widely rejected. Because your word has told us that men love darkness. They don't want to come to the light lest their deeds, their evil deeds be exposed. And Lord, we know where that comes from. We've, we'll see it in the passage today. And Lord, we have seen it in our own lives. And so I pray for those in this room who are born-again believers, that Lord, that you would encourage us this morning with this passage. You would remind us of where you found us. And that, Father, we would understand why we reject you, why we hide from you, why we experience shame and guilt and fear. And Father, I pray that for those who are in this room who have never been saved, that today may be the day that you quicken their hearts and may the day that you've appointed salvation, they may repent of their sin and place their faith and trust in you. And it's in that that we pray, that we ask that you would aid us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we looked at Genesis chapter 3 last week. We were trying to bring clarity to why this passage is important. So we first looked at the importance of this narrative in the world. Ultimately, as we see that, the world isn't very good, as I've described and I've discussed, and we spent much time last week um, explaining. And so as we begin to look at this, this passage is helpful to us. And yet many inside the church and clearly outside the church believe Genesis 3 to be simply a myth, a fable, a metaphor, not an accurate accounting of what actually took place. And, and in this, this is not helpful because ultimately it will not give us uh, a true rendering of what has taken place and which parts are the metaphor and which parts are, are we supposed to, what are we supposed to be gleaning from this and where's the encouragement that we're supposed to know and to, and to receive. And so as we look at this, it helps us to be able to see that this is why the world isn't good any longer in the sense of uh, it's full of sin, it has been marred by sin. And so then it's, this passage is not simply important in that, but it's important that it begins to give us an explanation of sin and evil in the world that we begin to see uh, that ultimately there was a physical accounting that how the world came into existence as far as material and matter, but then there was a moral and spiritual accounting that helps us to begin to see uh, how people respond and why the people, uh, us in, in particular and others as well, respond the way that we do and why there would be evil attitudes, evil actions that we see all around us. And so we begin to see the process of intelligence and reason and choice that God had granted uh, uh, his creatures uh, those being the climax and the apex of his creation, we in human beings. And so we begin to see the explanation of sin and how it entered into the world. And you begin to see the definition of sin and evil. And ultimately that sin, as First John 3 will tell us, is lawlessness. It's uh, uh, transgressing the law. We're moving beyond the boundaries that God has placed in us. And those boundaries being an attempt to protect us and provide for us. 
that ultimately, as we look at that, many people would, would say that God is a cosmic killjoy, and so he puts all these commands because he hates us, and that yeah, he doesn't want us to have any fun. But when you begin to look at the Ten Commandments, do you want someone to steal from you? Would you like someone to commit adultery against you? Would you like someone to uh, murder you or those that you love? And so you begin to look at the commands of God, you begin to see that they are extremely helpful. As parents, do you want your children to obey you? And so you begin to look at these and go, hey, there's, there's something to that, right? But uh, looking at our own lives and not the lives of others, we don't want to be restricted. And I use those in quotes and quotations. That's how people begin to look at that God is being restrictive and that he's not a loving and good heavenly father. And so in that, they, sin is transgressing the law as we described. And so then that would begin to see what sin is. And then we begin to have a, not only a definition, but then the uh, existence of evil in the world. And that's what we talked about much last week. That's why many people, especially atheists, begin to look at creation and go, well, now how can this be where we're at today? And we spent much time looking at that. And so as we navigate to that one major point that I want to just help us to see as we're looking at the definition of evil is that it's simply the absence of good. It's not a created thing as if God created it and put it in the world so that man may stumble over it, that ultimately they would reject God uh, and they would reject um, his goodness and ultimately they would then uh, have all these atrocities that we see in our world today. This isn't the intent behind uh, um, uh, what many believe that is God's creating evil. Ultimately, evil is just the absence of good. And this is why when you transgress the law, you're rejecting God's character, you're rejecting God's nature, and you're rejecting God's word. And so his word is displaced his character, displaced his nature. And what do we know? Everything that God created was good. So it reflects who he is. And so his word then says, do not do this because in doing this, you're going to spurn my goodness. You're going to spurn my glory. You're going to spurn my loving character. And as a result of that, if I, by simple definition, God is good and all he creates is good, then you're going to be outside of that. And being outside of that, your willing choice, as we've talked about before, intelligence is to be able to know information, reasons, be able to process information, and choice is being to determine your behavior based upon that information. This measure of freedom is then ultimately then what leads to, uh, that is given to the creatures, what leads them to perform or to do evil because ultimately they are rejecting what is good. And so in this, that's the very definition of evil. And in 1 John 1, 5, we said, uh, this is the message we have from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And then begin to walk through. So what does that mean? Just as darkness is the absence of light, it's using then light and darkness as a metaphor that ultimately then God is good. And so therefore, darkness would then be evil. It would be a demonstration that God, uh, what is not God. And so ultimately, evil isn't something God created and put into the world that man may stumble on it. This uh, is exactly what mankind has chosen to do. And so ultimately you say, where, uh, where then did evil come from? Evil, uh, the one, here's the answer to that. The one who chose evil is the source of it. The one who chose evil will then be the source of it. And so, and then what we spoke about last, where did evil come from? And it's not some created thing that God created, but ultimately it came from uh, uh, man's choice, the ability that God grant us to have intelligence, reason, and choice. And in that, man chose to live outside God's good confines. And so as a result of that, they chose to live in evil. And then we began to see the setting of the entrance, the setting of the entrance of sin and creation. And we saw that was the Garden of Eden. And then in that setting, you had Adam and Eve. And then there was the serpent. That's where we left off last week. And so that's where we'll begin to dive in and, and begin to explain a little bit of this in your notes. You'll begin to see creation and the curse of sin, part two. And then uh, we will not wrap this up, as I said. So next week... Uh, will be uh, creation and the curse of sin, part three. So uh, stay with me, but it all begin to tie together. But I want to make sure that we have an opportunity to be able to navigate through this together. So uh, we look at your first point there in your notes. It says the process of sin revealed. There's a process that walks through that ultimately that sin will then be revealed in them. You're going to see a sin, uh, sins in the heart, and then from sins in the heart, we'll begin to see that sin being manifest not just in attitude, but then in action. And so, verse 1, we're seeing the process being fulfilled. What happened to you, we're going to see there in the garden. And you'll see now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so, as we spoke very quickly on toward the end of uh, last week's uh, message, and the serpent was actually an animal. It was an animal that God had created. And so, why do we know that? It's because of the way it's described here in this particular passage. It was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So it's an animal that God 
had made, and ultimately it was going to be very similar to the other beasts of the field. And so it's not just a metaphor uh, um, that is, uh, or a made-up creature or something in that way. No, it's an actual animal that was in the garden. But it was more crafty, it was more intelligent, it was more cunning than any other beast of the field. And it's actually going to be an animal that speaks, right? And so this is why many would look at this particular passage and say it's fable, that ultimately the animals do not speak. And uh, to their fence, they're right. There's uh, rare occasions that you see animals speaking uh, and that you will see and, uh, occasionally pop up and arise in the Bible that animals will speak. You know, uh, uh, Balaam's donkey began to speak. But ultimately, what do we know about this particular instance and the instance with, with Balaam's donkey? That it wasn't the animal itself that was speaking. It was just an instrument that God was using uh, in, as far as it relates to God spoke through Balaam's donkey. And so here you're going to be able to see that the serpent that spoke was not just simply a serpent in and of itself. There was something greater taking place, and the Bible helps us to begin to see that. In the book of Revelation, chapter 12, verse 9, you, you see this. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. Um, uh, sorry. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And so what we know that the Bible begins to speak, that a third of the angels had fallen when Satan began to resist God and uh, rejected God, desired to be God himself. And so you begin to see that. And so you'll see that he is called the serpent, and he is called the dragon, the ancient serpent, of old, right? And so you begin to see that's who we begin to realize this is. And so the serpent that is speaking is an actual serpent, uh, but it is being it is being used as an instrument uh, by the evil one, by Satan himself. And so then you'll see same thing in Revelations chapter twenty, verse one and two. It says, "Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent." who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. And so you're beginning to see, we have some insight then into who this serpent is. And so ultimately it's an actual animal, but the animal was being used by uh, a much greater force. And that was one who could speak, who did have intelligence, uh, who did have reason, who did have choice. All the things that were granted as a rational creature that was granted to humans is the same thing we see uh, with the angels, and so ultimately they would have had choice, otherwise they would not have rejected God uh, and would have fallen as we see had taken place in the scriptures as it relates to uh, Satan or the devil. And so this is what we begin to see it taking place here. And so then Satan, in the form of serpent, then says to the woman, did God actually say, and you're going to begin to see the process working, as we talked a little bit about last week, the scheme that was beginning to work its way out. And so he begins to uh, question God's word. Now, this is exactly what happens over and over and over all throughout uh, conversations you may have and even studies of individuals who will begin to talk about the Word of God. They'll, they can quote the Word of God or they'll misrepresent the Word of God. And so ultimately, they're leading us um, that they know the Word to a certain degree, but they're wanting to then misrepresent what God says. They know God's Word, but then they want to distort God's Word. And there's an intentionality here that they would begin to question it, Right? That then ultimately then it would lead us to doubt it, and then in doubting it would lead us to distrust it, and then from distrusting it we would be disobedient to it, right? And so that's the process that we're going to begin to see happening as then sin will be revealed in the heart and from heart to the actions of first Eve and being deceived and then Adam as he blatantly rejects the commands of God, right? And so this is exactly what's taking place here. So we're going to see Satan as the Bible describes in John chapter 8, being the father of lies, as we're going to see, he's the father of it. He's the originator of it. He's going to be lying. He's going to lie to uh, Eve here. He's going to begin to ask questions, and then from the questions, he's going to then flat just misrepresent, deceive, to lie to her. Ultimately, for the purpose, as John 8 also says, that he is a murderer and had been a murderer from the beginning. Who is he trying to murder? He's trying to, to uh, bring about the death of Adam and Eve, right? Because the word had been communicated that if you eat of this tree, you shall surely what? Die, And so an intentionality to get them to transgress, to move beyond the law, to then understand and know what is evil, uh, this is the intent that Satan has for Adam and Eve. And primarily because what? He hates God. He wants to be in the place of God. And he cannot, right? He's been cast down already, and now he dwells upon the earth. And as a result of that, um, uh, he is attempting then to thwart God's plans, which he cannot. And we'll see that next week. 
All right, so we see the serpent then saying, Satan, in the form of serpent saying, did God actually say, did God actually say this? And then he asked her the question, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden of Eden? Now, do you see how that's been worded, how that's been, uh, has been given uh, to Adam and Eve as it relates to um, uh, the, the way it's been posed, the way the, the question's been framed? It's like when somebody comes up and says, well, then, uh, uh, how long have you been beating your wife? Well, the way the question's framed, right, is that, well, I don't really know how to answer that question because I, I don't beat my wife, right? But the, the way the question's framed begins to lead you to the or the person, others who may be hearing or interpreting that to begin to think things about others. And this is exactly the way Satan begins the question. Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? So what is, it, what is, he, what is his attempt in this process? Is to begin to now put a negative response as how a person would frame the reputation of God. Right? That's not all how, so it comes from the negative rather than the positive. What did God say in verse 16 of chapter 2? Put him in the garden. Verse 15, he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Every tree you may eat. Limitless interaction with the garden, except. But of the tree, just the one, just the one tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? So look at the abundance that you have, and there's but one exception. But that is not how Satan then frames the question to Eve. Did God surely say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Look at the restrictive nature of God. Look how he's limiting you from the things that you really desire. Have you put much thought into the fact that why you can't eat of, of this one tree? And in light of that, you must put doubt upon God's character of why then he would limit you so much. We've done this as a generation ever since the fall. Question God's word. Relates to sexual revolution. Desire. Sleep with whomever you desire. Whomever you wish. Live in a... In a don't live under the confines of God that He doesn't desire you to enjoy this good creation. No, this is God's limiting you. And so ultimately, God is not good and He cannot be trusted. And so He frames the question by simply just asking a question. He frames it in a way that would begin to undermine the good and great and, and godly character of God Himself, right? The, Morally excellent character of God. He says, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And you begin to see Eve's response. And Eve does not seem to be shocked that a serpent has spoken to her. Now, I don't know how long they would have lived here. We would assume this is not day seven. Because uh, God will have rested on day seven. But ultimately, we don't know exactly how much time has transpired. Uh, but ultimately, we uh, she doesn't appear to be uh, shocked at the fact that a serpent is speaking to her. It uh, doesn't give us any insight into that, so I'm not going to speak toward that. But ultimately, uh, she feels comfortable enough to have a conversation with a, a serpent, despite the fact that I would assume there's no other conversations to be had, and we don't have any reason to believe there would be any other animals that would be talking, uh, as the Bible describes them as irrational beings and does not speak to them as they would uh, have the same intelligence, reason, and choice uh, anywhere throughout Scripture that we begin to see them in any level uh, like mankind, because they are not created in the image of God with rational fac- faculties, self-awareness, self-consciousness. And so as we look at this, this is not what we see them. But she didn't seem to have any question corresponding with the serpent. And so verse 2, And the woman, Eve, said to the serpent, we may, eat of the tr- uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, is that what God said? When I read uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, uh, 16 and 17, did you see anywhere in there where the Bible says that ultimately they should not touch it lest they, I mean, uh, lest they touch it lest you die? Well, that's not there. Now, where did that come from? Uh, I, I would not believe Adam would have communicated that to her and adding to God's word, and we would never want to take away from God's word, and we would never want to add to God's word. But ultimately here we see Eve adding to God's word. Ultimately, what could be happening here was she will eventually be deceived, and she, uh, as the scripture will tell us, and we've seen, and we will see here shortly, 
and as we've already read, as the, the passage has described, but ultimately, is it that she's already begun to buy into the fact that some of the things that Satan is asking her? Has she already begun to question God's good nature and his character? Well, why would God limit me from eating this one tree? Why would God do that? And so with the framing of the question, could it be that now there's a restrictive nature that is being implied here that Satan had intended for her to pick up on, pick up upon, right? For her to be able to uh, wrap her arms around and wrap her mind around that God may be restrictive. And so now it's not just a matter of you would take it and eat it. And that's a direct reality. But ultimately, it, just by touching it doesn't mean that you're going to die. It said that you would not eat it. And they, you should not eat of it. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It didn't say you couldn't just touch it. But now you may be seeing that it's the restrictive nature that Satan wanted her to begin to think and see and to view God, to assassinate his character. She's begun to uh, embrace that. Well, it does seem pretty restrictive and this is just inference here, but it does seem pretty restrictive that Eve might be thinking. And man, he doesn't even want us to touch it. God seems pretty difficult. And ultimately, that we were, we're not to eat of the fruit, the fruit and the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Which would imply that not only would they die if they ate of it, but they would die if they touched it as well. So there's just a question, right? Now, at this particular time, all that we know that God has designed, all that we see that God has created was good. And so there's no reason to think that God's character and his nature wasn't, wouldn't be benevolent, wouldn't be good, wouldn't be um, morally perfect. And so in this, the question would be, why wouldn't Eve go, well, why, first of all, you're a serpent. Why are you talking to me? Who are you? But then second of all, to begin to defend God's character. And we, you can see this all throughout. Uh, clearly as any form of leader, you're going to begin to see that take place when things go right. They're the smartest leader. They're the smartest uh, coach or they're the smartest um, uh, employer. They're the smartest whatever that you begin to think, man, what a wise decision. But when things don't go according to plan, then all of a sudden they're the most heinous person you begin to see. And clearly as a pastor, there's been times in my own life where uh, uh, there would be criticisms about me or comments or gossip or slander that would be described about me or about my character, and I would go, what have you seen over the past however many years that you've known me, and there's been a variety of different uh, interactions with many of you in this room uh, and in, in, in the, in others that may have left here as well, that you begin to go, of all the time that you've known me, and even though there's varying times of, of knowledge of my character uh, based upon who are in the room or who have departed, that you know some know me longer and some have known me a short amount of time, that would lead you to believe that I would respond that way, right? That you would, at some point you think I would... Hope you would defend the things that you know about me when somebody brings an accusation or a slander against me, right? Rather than going, well, you know what? That's, there is a question that I've had. There were some other things that led up to this. And so, uh, but rather than defending the character of the person who is in question, this is the same statement I would make about Eve. As you begin to wonder, what is it about God that's made you question his good and loving character, his loving nature? And so... She begins to add to God's word. As you've seen the process begin to happen. Once again, question leads to doubt, leads to distrust, which will then eventually lead to disobedience. To verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, Now here's where ultimately the question that began to frame it, now it's going to just lead straight to a lie. A lie. And this is why he's uh, described Satan in, in John chapter 8 uh, as the father of lies. This is the first lie that will have been told, right? And it says, you will, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You won't die. Now that is a lie. Why? It absolutely contradicts what God said was going to happen and that they eventually will die. They will not die instantaneously, but they will die and there will be the curse of sin, which is why evolution doesn't make sense, right? There is no death until after this point. When sin and, and uh, disobedience is entered into the world, that ultimately there was a perfect creation. And so ultimately you cannot have uh, day creationism or you can't have a gap theory and you can't have evolutionary theory in the context of a biblical account. Now those who don't buy anything in the scriptures uh, don't care. But for those who claim to know the word and obey the word and, and trust the word, you can't fit it in there because why? You cannot having creatures dying for millions and millions and millions of years when there is no death yet. And so to put a gap theory in Genesis 1 and 2 cannot happen because you would have to have uh, a host of millions of years of death and destruction where there isn't any death. 
There isn't any destruction. There isn't any uh, evil, and there is no sin that had entered into the world at this particular time. And so ultimately, it's not until Genesis 3 where sin enters into the world that you will have death, uh, disease, decay, and, and, and so on. So ultimately, you will not see that in the Scriptures. But he lies to Eve and says, you will not surely die. And then he begins to then attack God's character. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes eat of it, it being the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, he lies to Eve and saying that she will not surely die. But then he does not lie to her saying that she will be like God in knowing good and evil because that is exactly what will happen. Right? This is exactly what the Scriptures don't take my word for it. This is exactly what the Scripture says. Go to uh, verse 22. Still in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, this is God speaking, Behold, the man has become like one of us. In which way? Omniscience? He knows everything? No. Omnipresence, he's everywhere at the same place? No. Is he omnipotent? Can he just cast mountains into the sea because he has ultimate force, power, and strength? No. So what way is he like God? Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, that can be deceptive, so we want to be sure that we describe this accurately. How is then man like God and that he knows good and evil. Well, both will know it intellectually, right? They'll understand the concept. And so definitely you're going to see that now Adam and Eve are going to know it in the sense that they intellectually will know it. They know it exists where they had not known evil. They did not know the absence of good. And now they will. Remember, the definition of evil is the absence of good. This is darkness is the absence of light, right? Cold is the absence of heat. And so you begin to see this. This is... Uh, this concept, they begin to now understand it. So Satan was not wrong. He was deceptive. He was a deceiver. He has their worst intent, uh, uh, desire for them, for not for their good, but for their death. And so he told them a lie, and then he told them the truth. The reality and the truth, it was only a half-truth, which would be another lie, right? Where... They are not like God, is that God does not know evil experientially. There is no evil in him. He is, once again, he is perfectly good. He is morally upright. And so he does not know sin in that way. He does not, uh, he's not tempted by sin, or as James 1 says, and he doesn't tempt anyone with sin because that is not the nature and character of God. And so where they're intellectually they're the same, they know good and evil, but then Adam and Eve will know it experientially. They've experienced evil. They will die, and God will not and cannot die. This would be like individuals in this room that would know intellectually that there is cancer and a, a myriad of forms of cancer. Or a doctor who would begin to work on patient after patient after patient where they were removing a variety of uh, a form of cancer from a person's body. And they would know it from an intellectual type of way. Uh, and even an experiential and from a distance, right? But not themselves because they themselves do not have cancer. Whereas Adam and Eve would be like the patient who now know there's cancer out there but have experienced the cancer because the cancer is in them. Where the cancer is not in the doctor or the cancer is not or the evil is not in God. Does that make sense? And so they will be like God intellectually uh, on this level of knowing good and evil, but then the, the distinction is, is that that evil is now inside them where it is not in God, and as a result of that, it will, it will be to their death, which is what God the Father had warned them. And we begin to see then that it was by God's loving character and His great and good moral care, uh, conduct that God wanted to protect them and prevent them from this horrible thing, which is why God's commands as they are. They're there to protect us and provide for us. So you see the great deceiver leading her in, and, and uh, instructing her into sin. And so now, 
what does Eve do with this? She's already beginning to pick up on some things, begins to see the restrictive nature, or at least it appears to see the restrictive nature of God from the question that had been posed. Did God say you couldn't eat of any trees in the garden? Ultimately, that's not at all how God worded it. God worded it from the positive. Satan words it from the negative. That God was restrictive in preventing her from enjoying life. Ultimately, then she picks up on that, adds to God's word, says, now we'll die if we even touch it. The serpent then lies to her and says, you will not. And ultimately, he begins to slander God's character and says, he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want any rivals. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Now, what's happening here? I'm going to hold your place here and turn to James chapter 1. I want you to see what's transpiring here. You're going to see sin that, that begins in the heart then leads to a sin in action. James chapter 1 We'll pick up in verse 12, so just hold your place there. We'll go very quickly, verse 12, 13, and 14, so just three verses, and then we'll hit one other passage before we make our way, but you won't have to turn to that passage. I'll just read it to you, and it'll help us, I think, hopefully help us to navigate this passage and to ring out all that God would want us to know from these passages, all right? So James 1 says this, uh, yeah, verse, uh, we'll not read verse 12, we'll read verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he, can, and he, he himself tempts no one. So this is important for us. God never uh, assumes responsibility for evil, that he ultimately is going to then put evil or evil desires in anyone. He cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one to do evil, right? So this is what the Scripture says. And it's uh, where we want to make sure that we're defining sin uh, and we're describing sin that we never attribute sin or or evil to God. But each person, there's where the source is. Where did evil come when we saw the one who chose evil is the source of it? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So what are we going to see? You want to turn back, but I'll read uh, see what happens. So Satan is now enticing her to evil. Uh, and so then when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so now there's a desire there. He's uh, placing desires. And so you're seeing where the, the ability to have intelligence, to know information, and to process information, and then to determine behavior by choice, you're beginning to see that the freedom that's been given the creature, this is exactly what's taking place in her, right? She is being tempted by her own desires because she sees this fruit. And, it, and ultimately, she can see that the, the tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. And so ultimately, she's being lured, and she's being enticed by her own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so it's exactly what you're seeing in this passage, right? That she's beginning to be lured and enticed by the things that Satan is saying to her, beginning to accuse God's character. She's going to begin to sin in the heart, and then from the heart, the sin will then manifest itself where she's already then bought in hook, line, and sinker with the evil ways of Satan. And that ultimately then she's going to take of the fruit and eat it. And you're going to see that sin manifested outwardly even though the sin had already started inwardly, right? The external is going to be seen. And the internal, the, ad- the action is going to be described or de- um, defined by the attitude. And so she'd already begin to reject the things of God, which is exactly what takes place in us. That's why the Bible would then say the battle for us to win is a battle of evil desires, right? That's where Galatians would begin to tell us that we should live, is on the internal so that it does not manifest itself in the external. You work on the action, or the attitudes, um, you work on the attitudes, the actions will follow, right? And so that's why when you think about a variety of different issues that you struggle with, it's not just a matter of, of uh, trying to prevent that thing. You want to begin to look at the inward attitudes, right? You want, and this is exactly where we're in as we're studying the Sermon on the Mount that God is instructing us and leading us to begin to see attitudes that lead to proper actions. And so, ultimately, this is the, the scheme of the evil one, right? This is the process of sin being revealed in her, toward, to her, and then in her, and then manifested from her, right? Sin entering into the world as we know it. And this scheme is the same scheme that Satan uses over and over and over and over. It is not new. How do we know that? It's a passage I was going to tell you to... We were going to read. You don't have to turn there, but you can just write it down. I'll read it to you, and we'll explain it, and we're going to see it in our passage this morning. Uh, but it says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 
Do not love the world or the things in the world. Doesn't it mean that we shouldn't be grateful for the world that God created? It's speaking of the, the evil system that's in the world. We're speaking of worldly things rather than godly things, a worldliness, a fleshly type of life rather than the temporal things rather than the things that are eternal. This is what it's speaking of when it talks about the world, not the, the physical world that ultimately you would, uh, man, I hate plants and I hate uh, God's creation. No, it's speaking of the world system. If anyone loves the world and its system, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now it's going to begin to describe what is in this world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So the desires of fleshly things, that there, you would have, uh, uh, you begin to take like Esau that gave up his birthright because of a meal and then ultimately he just had a lust for something that was temporal and ultimately gives away what was spiritual, his birthright, because why? Of, a, of an appetite. And you begin to see that people's appetites for things that are fleshly, a desire for sex or desire for alcohol, desire for drugs, a desire for food, ultimately they'll give away the spiritual things for the things of the flesh. And the desires of the eyes, that's the temporal things that, that we want that would make us be esteemed over someone else. We begin to covet what other people have, what other people drive, the type of houses they have, the jobs they have, the clothing that they have, the possessions that they have. Ultimately, these things that desire the eyes that would begin to elevate us and esteem us because of the things that we would want. And then the pride of life, right? The pride of the things that we begin to have, the pride of having possessions that would then begin to uh, uh, distinguish us from anything and everyone that's around us, right? And so ultimately, we want that because of a sinful attitude. And it says, for all that is in the world, those three things, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Why? Because God is not neither tempted by sin or tempts anyone to sin. He's not evil. He is good. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of, the God, will of God abides forever. Now, you're going to see these three things uh, in uh, Satan's attempt to be able to snooker and to be able to deceive, if you will, uh, Eve, and this is exactly what she does. It's the way she responds. So when Eve saw that the tree was good for food, right? So there's the desire of the flesh. It can provide for me. I'm hungry, or I would I potentially would like to be uh, to eat this. Ultimately, there was a desire. And it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, to esteem her to be able to eat this. And that the tree was desired to make one wise, right? Ultimately, the pride of life. Ultimately, she would be able to have this, and people would begin to look at her and say, "Look how, look at me. Look what I've been able to accomplish." And all that came forth, and ultimately, then what did that do? Those desires for the world and not what God had said leads her then to reject God. And now she's going to experience, she's going to know good and evil, but in a different way than God does because she's going to see what life is like outside of the good and loving confines of, or not confines of a world that God had created that was only good, that had no sin, and she's about to experience it. So she's been deceived to be able to, uh, to lead uh, being led to be deceived into taking the fruit and eating of it, and so she took the fruit and op- uh, 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 took of the fruit and ate. Right, and that's exactly where then she had already sinned in the heart, and now she's going into the attitudes are going to lead to the actions. And this is exactly what you see taking place. Now, this isn't new to uh, the way Satan's works. Once again, the Bible describes this is how it is in the world. This is how it works. How it works in my heart. How it works in your heart. Ultimately, that we begin to see the desire. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life in us. And it manifests itself over and over and over again. This is what we know. We know the battle. And as G.I. Joe used to say, you remember the old commercial or the old cartoons at the very end of a 30-minute segment of G.I. Joe, and it would say it'd have like a, a health segment or a, 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 a means of trying to give our teaching points and tips to the kids. And it was saying, and knowing is half the battle, right? So it'd say, say something happened, there'd be down power lines, tell them what to do, and it'd be like, and knowing is half the battle. Ultimately, reality here is that the battle is won by God. It's already been won by God, but he also gives us Satan's schemes so we can be able to know them, so we could be able to then see them and turn from them. And this is exactly how Satan even comes to the Son of God. If you look at Luke chapter 4, you'll have to turn there, but you can study on your own. I believe it's verses 1 through 11. You're going to see Satan doing the same three things, tempting Jesus with uh, the same t- or attempting to cheat, cheat, uh, to. Uh, um, tempt Jesus in his godhood. He could not be tempted because he is God. And the Bible says in James 1 that God cannot be tempted. But in his manhood, he can be tempted. And so ultimately, a, a desire to entice him for desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and desires for the pride of life. And so ultimately, you begin to see that same process happening there. And then what did Jesus respond? Even Satan quotes scripture to Jesus, but misquotes just like he does here to, to Eve. And But Jesus does not 
fall for it. A better Adam uh, succeeds in honoring God and fulfilling his word. But not Eve. She's deceived and she eats from it. And so she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, was he there the whole time? It says he was with her. Was he with her? Then when she ate the fruit, did Satan deceive her? And then she goes over and grabs the fruit and then brings it to him. Uh, what transpired, what happened, who, there's just no way to know, and the Bible doesn't care to make us aware of those things. We can, and people can speculate, was he with her the whole time and just abdicated his responsibilities? I have no idea. The reality is uh, she was deceived, but then he took it and ate it willingly. He was not deceived, right? Now, how did that happen? I don't know. Could it be that she eats of the fruit and doesn't die instantaneously, and so then she brings them and says, look, I ate of this, and I'm not dead. And so then he rejects openly what God has said. He was not deceived, but then just blatantly believes God's a liar and then chooses to eat. I have no idea. You don't know. The reality is uh, he eats of it. And so then ultimately um, um, you begin to see then the effects of what takes place, which is verse 7. The process of sin is now manifests itself outwardly. And then they begin to see the consequences of that. And this is verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. Now, they had been naked before. And one of my favorite verses in verse 25, and they were not ashamed. Right? There was no evil desires. There was no evil intents. There was no weighing of words and measuring statements. There was no questioning of one another. There was no um, ill intent on either party. But now, you're going to see a completely different approach. You're going to begin to see how they view themselves and how they view each other. And now they're viewing it from a sinful manner. There's a, what began to question the one who should not be questioned, the one who had the most upright characters. They begin to question, and then no one is off limits. And now they begin to see a shame. And once I said before, uh, it can be a whole theology of closing because you see the very next, ver- uh, next uh, same verse, very next sentence. It says, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. There was a shame that was associated that even leads to a shame of their bodies and the same sex, sexually. And you're going to then see how sex is uh, perverted all throughout. And you don't even get to the end of Genesis where you see massive, massive forms of perversion sexually. We walk through that, you're, you're going to see it again and again and again where there will be rape and abuse and uh, homosexual interactions. And you're going to see over and over and over and over again uh, how um, what God had created to be uh, a pleasant and a uh, to perform procreation and a progeny of children ultimately is going to lead to much perversion. And this is exactly what you see. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And so many times people will be like, well, it's just a cultural stigma and we have clothing because of this or that. The reality is there's a, a reason for it and it's because it's to, to cover up shameful um, to cover up our shame, and it's ultimately in that to be able to, to uh, protect the modest parts, as the Bible describes uh, for us. And so ultimately there's a reason for it. So you go to a, a, a tribe in the jungle and they have no clothes on, ultimately you say, look how they're not inhibited by the culture. Look how they're not inhibited by those things. Well, clearly you don't understand what the Bible has described. There is shame associated with that. And many times you'll see in those same cultures where ultimately um, – there's an ignorance there, and there's a lack of education, and there's a, a rampant abundance of sin and disease. And so, and um, with that, you're going to see that there are consequences to that. And so they began to know their shame and uh, immediately began to sew fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Which I could say more about that. We might do a theology of clothing later. So you see the process of sin revealed. So I've got to move a little quicker here. You need to see the perfection of God rejected, verse 8 and 9 process of sin revealed, and then you see the perfection of God rejected. Verse 8 says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And as you think about the perfection of God, you could be able to be in a place where God walks with you in the cool of the day. And we don't know exactly what the cool of the day means. Some commentators would say it was at this particular portion or this particular time, and it doesn't tell us that there would be a, a slight breeze that would be blowing through as the end of the day was coming to a close. The sun was setting, beautiful uh, landscape, uh, picturesque uh, view of the landscape of 
of creation, and, and here God is walking with them in the cool of, in the garden in the cool of the day. So you have God's perfect creation, God the, God, the perfect creator, the uh, uh, benevolent creator and designer of all things who would uh, put, rule, uh, put one rule in the garden to protect them and, and to um, uh, demonstrate to them uh, his authority and their submission to him and able to enjoy everything that they had, would ever have need of or want of was provided there for them. And the one thing that he told them to not do is the very thing that they, uh, in a, having his character being assassinated, perform high treason against the king of the universe. And here is this king of the universe walking with them in the cool of the day. As if it's a common, the way it's described, as if it's a common experience that they would have and they would know. And of course it would be because ultimately God put Adam to sleep then performed a surgery upon him and then created Eve from, uh, from his side. And so as a result of this, they had intimate um, interactions and relationship there, as you begin to see in the garden. Intimate, not in a sexual way, but just in a relational way. And so ultimately, he see that there, God is, they heard the sound. They heard the rustling, maybe, of, of the wind of, of, of God moving in the midst of them, walking in the midst of the garden. And in that, it's the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Why would you want to flee and run from God? And the reality is is that's the depravity of sin. This is what John 3 says, that men hide hide in the darkness because they don't want their their deeds that were done in darkness to be exposed. They don't want God exposing their sin. And so they've tried to cover it up with the loincloths that they had made in verse 7. And now they begin to hear the voice of God and they run and they flee and they hide in the garden. Upon the garden upon which God had created, he created all things. And so he, uh, everything belongs to him. They can't find a place on the planet where they can run from God, right? The darkest places, he says, it's light to God, right? And the, and the depths of the sea, God is there. And the heights of the heavens, God is there. Where are you going to go, Adam? Where are you going to go, Eve? But God is not there and he cannot find you. It's true for us as Christians as well. Where will we go when we're in our sin? That God will not and cannot find us. Ultimately, they try to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. Our same language is used in Jonah. He is running, right? He is in told, he's told to go to Nineveh, right? And that is not where he goes. He finds his place to Joppa. From Joppa, he's, which is the opposite direction. And now he says, I want to get on a ship and go to the farthest location you can find, which is uh, Tarshish, right? And so he wants to run from the presence of the Lord. That's exactly what he says when the storm comes upon them and he gets cast overboard, that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And we see that he gets thrown into the depths of the sea and there, once again, you see the psalmist is right. Where can you go? You can be able to then try to uh, hide from the presence of God. Nowhere. You can not. And you're seeing that the perfection of God is being rejected. Ultimately, in his personhood, right? That he's walking in the cool of the day. But not only that, all that he's created, which was perfect. You're seeing the very character and nature and creation of God being rejected by Adam and Eve. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? He's calling to Adam, right? You see the loving, benevolent character and nature of God. Now, because how do we know that's the loving, benevolent character and nature of God? First of all, God could have just killed them. He knows where they're at. He knows all things. He knew what was going to happen. And the moment they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he could have destroyed them on, annihilated them on the moment and started over. Right? Six little days. He didn't need to take six little days. He did that in an attempt to set forth our our week and our, our calendar and the whole process of how we begin to measure time. Uh, same thing with the way the, uh, our world is created with the star, I mean, with the moon and the sun. And it helps uh, us to be able to calculate things and it keeps our, our, our planet in order. But ultimately, God didn't need those things. He designed it that way for his, because of his glory and his goodness and his majesty and his wisdom and his omniscience. And so you can see this is just God and his, and his marvelous creation and his wisdom that's beyond ours. But you see the loving pursuit of God. And so he knows where Adam and Eve is, and he's pursuing them. He's not asking, where are you, because he needs that information. He doesn't need them to tell them as if he doesn't know. He is looking for them, for them to give an account of what they have done. He's looking for them. That's a loving confrontation on their behalf. He's not looking for information, but for confrontation and accounting. Looking for them to confess their sin and to repent. 
looking for them to repent of their sin. And so he calls to them, called to the man who he left in order, he'd given the instructions to and said to him, Adam, where are you? Which then leads to our third point. So we saw the process of sin revealed, the perfection of God rejected, and then the pervasiveness of sin reflected. The pervasiveness of sin that had just started with assassinating God's character, begin to question God, right? And this is exactly what we saw. A question leads to doubt. Doubt leads to distrust. Distrust then leads to disobedience. And so now it's their sin had now completely marred everything about Adam and Eve. Right? Death had already taken its toll. It's beginning to, they were beginning to die instantly where they had not before, right? The perfect human beings. No sin had, had a negative impact upon them because there was no Sin. And so now you're going to see now everything that they, the way they view one another, the way they view creation, the way they view God, has all been marred to where now they're hiding or attempting to hide from God. They cannot hide from God, but they're attempting to hide to God in their limited, finite, foolish minds. Verse 13, you be, or 8 through 13, you begin to see the pervasiveness of sin. That's where we'll stop this morning. It says, They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the of God, the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Right? So he begins to talk to him. Where are you? And he says that as he heard, he begins to describe what's taking place. He says, I was afraid. Now, why would he be afraid? Because he rebelled and rejected God's good counsel, Right? Rejected the commands of God. He says, I was afraid. And he says, I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. So God asked him. He said, who told you you were naked? Hey, uh, where did you get this counsel from that you were naked? Who told you that? It's a good question, isn't it? Have you ever been told something you shouldn't do? And then you do it. And they may not have told you what the consequences of that would be, but now you know experientially what the consequences of that is. Why it's not good to do. As parents, as a pastor, as friends, we try to warn individuals of sin. The consequences of sin. But experientially, they'll, they'll be a much better uh, student, because why? They don't even know just the intellectual side. They know the experiential side of how destructive sin can be. And that's exactly what pastor, parent, friend wanted to prevent them from knowing was the experiential side. But ultimately, when you question God, you begin to doubt God, you distrust God, you will disobey God, and in doing so, you receive the destructive consequences of that disobedience. And so ultimately, he says, I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God asked him, who told you you were Naked. No one had to tell them they were naked. They knew it. Right? They had now evil desires and evil intents. So God immediately asked the next question. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Well, he knew the answer once again, right? He immediately can go to the right response because he knows all things. And he knew it was going to take place before it happened. He clearly knew when it took place. And now he's pursuing them despite the fact they were attempting to cover it all up. Right? He could have come to them long before they could sew the fig leaves together, but he did not. And so they're thinking they're going to try to cover things up. You, we try to do that same thing, do we not? Try to cover things up, think we have it all figured out, and eventually it gets ex- exposed because the Bible says what we uncover, God will cover. Right? What we willingly repent of and communicate, then God covers it up. It's been dealt with under the blood of Christ. But what we cover up, the Bible says God will uncover it. How does that work? Well, you know, when you cover up, you try to bury it. But when you bury seeds, what happens to the seeds? They sprout, right? And so this is the law of the harvest of Galatians chapter 6. And we try to cover things up, and they actually, actually sprout up, and others will see the harvest of our own sin. It may not be in the same season. It may not be in our lifetime. It may come in the lifetime of our children. The reality is those seeds will sprout and grow. And so he says, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, 
Now listen to how it's taking place. Now you're going to see, you already saw shame that's taking place, right? There's an evasiveness that he's not wanting to try to answer the question that's been given to him. Have you eaten of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil? There's going to be an evasive type of approach here. There's going to be blame shifting that's going to take place here. And there's going to be a, a genuine uh, lack of repentance that's going to take place. You don't see either one, Adam or Eve, repenting of what they've done. Pointing fingers. This will happen. Even you, God, did this. And so let's see what, how they respond. Have you eaten of the, of the uh, have you eaten of tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. There she is. Her fault. She did it. It's all her fault. The woman. And may I add, like, I wasn't a part of the creative process. I was asleep. So the woman you gave to be with me. So you have some culpability in this too, God. All right. I, clearly, I'm a victim of both my wife and of you. Because I would have never put myself to sleep and made her and wouldn't have done this. And so uh, you put me to sleep. You created woman. I was really excited for a minute. Then she messes everything up, right? And the old joke is she ate us out of house and home. Uh-huh, whatever, right? So ultimately, this is what happens. She sins. She deceives. Uh, she's deceived. She gives to me. I eat. Now it's the woman's fault. And now ultimately, God, it's your fault. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. I'm simply a victim. Victimization is still the words that we try to blame today. We blame shift. And we don't take responsibility for our own actions. And we try to blame everyone else rather than taking ownership of our sin. It's exactly what you see happen. An unrepentant heart, blame shifting, evasive, and shameful is the responses you see of, of sin. So no one's going to be taking responsibility or ownership of their own sin. So then God turns to Eve. What, what say you, Eve, right? And so uh, God says, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And so then the woman says, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. No repentance. Blame shifting. Now she's the victim. She was deceived. Um, unrepentant. Blame shifting. Evasive and shameful. Right? They're hiding themselves. They're afraid of God. And so the pervasiveness of sin has now permeated their relationship. As we're going to see, ultimately it doesn't get better. Right? Knowledge experientially of sin has marred them to now everything that they had known. Creation itself. Uh, all the good things that God had created from nature that we'll see will be cursed. They're, from the animals will be cursed. Their relationship to one another will be cursed. The uh, uh, effects of that as it relates to childbearing and working of the soil will be cursed. The relationship to God has been cursed, right? It's been, it's been negatively impacted because of what? Them being the very source of evil, right? They chose to reject God's loving counsel, his good moral character, goodness in and of itself. And as a result now, the absence of goodness is evil. And so they brought evil into the world. Now, Satan have anything to do with that? Absolutely. And so we'll begin to look at the punishment for sin coming up next week as we walk through verses four or uh, points four and five. For us, where do we take this away? What do we begin to look at? When you're dealing with individuals, right? As we're walking through this process of, of sharing with others, we understand the process of sin. So the first thing for us to begin to look at is that we're, we sin when we're lured and enticed for our own sinful desires. So the reality for us is begin to look behind that, begin to look in the heart, the very sinfulness of our hearts, right? Out of the man uh, is what flows evil and what will defile the man, not what we put into our bodies, right? That doesn't mean we shouldn't eat right. The reality is we shouldn't try to eat healthy. The reality is we're not, we don't sin against God because of what we put in our bodies. We sin against God what's already in us, which is sin. And so we begin to know the process of sin revealed. And so it's that, that system has not changed. And so as a result of that, we know there's a desire for uh, desire of the flesh, desire of the eyes, the pride of life. It will be those type of things that try to tempt us. And so for us and for others, our desire is to try to encourage us to turn from sin, to confront sin, to turn from sin and repent of it, which would be something we need to be thinking about even as we prepare for the Lord's Supper tonight, right? We, want to, we do not want to take it in an unworthy manner. And so we want to uh, look at sin in our lives and repent of those sins that we can be rightly related with God and with one another. And then we don't want to reject God, who is perfect, 
We don't want to reject the very presence of God in our lives. And so we want to make sure that we're looking to that and evaluating that in our own hearts. If there's any wicked way in us to lead us in the way of everlasting, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 would communicate to us. And then we look at the pervasiveness of sin in us and of others. And even as born-again believers, we've been given power over sin, but ultimately it's still in us. And so we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin. We don't want to give license to sin. And we don't want to give others license to sin. So we want to begin navigating that. But then also when we're rejected by the world, and this message is not one that the world is going to embrace wholesale. Ultimately, as we begin to look at that, then we need to realize how pervasive sin has been in our world. And ultimately, why, if you're like myself and have a garden, why you have so many weeds, right? Why you have so many thorns and thistles, why you have animals attacking your stuff, and why you want to attack the animals. And so I have to look at the own process of sin in me, right? And so uh, navigate through those things, because why? Sin is pervasive, and ultimately how we then want to respond in shame, while we want to evade uh, God in the way we would respond and others, while we don't want to be repentant, while we want to blame shift and we want to live in victimization, that ultimately it's not about us making choices that we're poor and us sinning against God, but how it's always somebody else's fault. And when this world, which is evil, hates us and condemns us and persecutes us, why we don't look at that individual as the enemy, but we see them as children of wrath, Sons and daughters of disobedience who are held captive by the evil one, who are blinded to the truth, who are sick and morally evil. We want to see them as God sees them, that hopefully they may be transformed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so that's all this we can see to begin to take away just from the first 13 verses of Genesis 3 as sin's been entered into the world. How much you and I can learn about ourselves and about the world that we live in and why it's so important that we would begin to study this book and believe that these opening chapters of Genesis isn't a myth and isn't a fable and isn't simply a metaphor. It is history. Lord, we thank you for your goodness.